Rice from Brain Smart People Development, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership, a series of conversations, insights, and inspirations with leaders who are real, raw, and authentic. Today, I bring you an insightful conversation that unpacks and demystifies some of the terminology around diversity and inclusion, explained brilliantly by Toby Milden. Our conversation has many levels of depth and covers a broad area, which makes it the perfect resource for any manager or leader wanting to get to grips with this critically important topic, and also to hear from Toby's lived experience. And if you think that our ending is a little abrupt, that's because we spent too much time catching up before the recording, making Toby late for his next meeting. Enjoy. I met this month's guest when I went back to the UK for a couple of years. It was back in 2015. And at the time, he was diversity and inclusion manager for the BBC and also project managed speakers to run workshops on various topics, of which I delivered a couple. And we later co-facilitated a workshop on habits of inclusion. At the beginning of 2019, Toby Milden founded Milden, a boutique diversity and inclusion consultancy focused on supporting organizations to implement diversity and inclusion more effectively. And this is the topic of our conversation today. It's it's the essence of inclusion in leadership. Toby, great to see you again and a very warm welcome to Authentic Leadership. Thanks, Claire. It's so lovely to see you again. And uh, I can't believe that it was 2015 that we first met. I know that's a bit scary, isn't it? It is. Time <laughs> time has completely flown by. Oh, gosh. Um, so uh, before we sort of get into the, the normal way that I run the podcast and the questions, I was thinking maybe if we could try a slightly different approach to today, because I think that, well, I believe certainly I can, and I think we could all benefit from, from just getting greater clarity around some of the terminology used in the area of diversity, equity and inclusion. It's very um, terminology rich, I think. So, and, and then maybe once we've done that, dive a little bit deeper into, you know, DNI from your perspective, from what you're doing with, with organisations and leaders. Would that be okay? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good place to start. Great. Thank you. And look, if there's anything caveat hold my hands up here if there's anything i say that can be potentially construed as what you term a micro inequity which we will cover in a little bit or in any way reveals an unconscious bias in my language you have my permission to call me out yeah no worries and likewise you know i i often put my foot in it so um you know if i if i say something then uh, feel free to to highlight it to me as well Brilliant, great, we're even Stevens, lovely. Um, okay, so actually, no, hang on a minute. Before we go into that, um, I, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about who's, who are you, who's Toby, and why are you so obviously passionate about this topic? Yeah, so I um, spent the first half of my career actually working in technology, Um, So uh, when I left university, I was an IT consultant for Accenture. I worked in healthcare technology, um, implementing software into hospitals. And then I ended up at the BBC uh, as a project manager 
redeveloping the news website, uh, developing the BBC Sounds app, and uh, a number of accessibility projects. And I I fell into diversity and inclusion by accident, really. Um, so I used to work really closely with the leadership team of the technology department, and they were worried at the time about the gender imbalance that we had in tech. So uh, only about 14% of our workforce were women um, compared oh, to the yeah. rest of the BBC, which had a 50-50 gender split. So, I mean, this is a kind of a known issue in science and technology and engineering yeah, sector. Yeah. Um, so the leadership team basically created a plan to uh, get more women into technology and they needed a project manager to execute the plan and I volunteered. And I suppose I, I'd, I was interested anyway because I've got my own lived experience of diversity and inclusion. Um, mm -hmm. I was born with a rare genetic neuromuscular disability. So I've been a wheelchair user all of my life and I, I need 24 hour care. So I've mm -hmm. had my own experiences of yeah. inclusion and exclusion in the world of work. So there was always that interest there to begin with. Yeah. Wow. And so what was the, so you, you left the BBC and then was it Deloitte's that you went to work for? Yeah, so I'd been at the BBC for about 10 years and mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine, she's a leadership expert and she said, um, she said, you know, if you're at an organisation for uh, 10 years, then you, you're officially institutionalised. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, that scared the crap out of me. So um, <laughs> I decided to leave um, the BBC and go and work for Deloitte. But I mean, there, there was a more serious reason. And that was for me, I knew at that time that I really wanted to work in the diversity and inclusion space. Yeah. And the business case for diversity and inclusion at the BBC is is rather straightforward. Um, you know, the BBC is a publicly funded body mm. um, and therefore it's really important that everyone in the UK sees themselves reflected in the content that the BBC produces. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I was really intrigued as to why one of the big four accountancy firms were so invested in diversity and inclusion but Deloitte also had much more of a focus on culture, creating a culture of respect and inclusion, as they put it. And was there was there a catalyst? Was there an event, anything that happened, or you just woke up one morning and thought, right, I just want to create my own business? Yeah, I, I suppose... I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial bug in me. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. Um, way back from when I was younger, um, I used to, when I was at school, I used to run run the school tuck shop. Uh, <laughs> I took over the disco committee. I got told off by the headmaster for making too much profit, which completely baffled me because I thought the whole point of running an enterprise is to make a profit. So uh -huh. how on earth can you make too much profit? So I was, um, I suppose I always had that kind of entrepreneurial bug yeah. inside me. Um, but I was working for Deloitte. Um, I was happy working for the firm. Um, we were doing some great work, some great projects. But part of me just felt like I wanted to make a bigger impact. Yeah. Um, and the ability to work with 
multiple organisations. And also, I had a few creative projects up my sleeve, so I really wanted to write a book. And I felt that I need I needed to do that under my own steam. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you. And we'll 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 touch on the book as well throughout our conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Toby. It's a really good it's a really good background to set the scene. So so let's go into our clarifying our 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 terminology. Um because it's just it's such it's such a vast area. So I'm thinking the uh, maybe I'd like to start by exploring the view that you share about the whole spe- spectrum of diversity because I think that this set the scene sets the scene well for the foundation of our yeah. conversation in particular the iceberg analogy that you refer to in your book I really like how you present that in inclusion growth can you can you speak to that please yeah so i mean diversity basically means our differences Mm. i mean that that's all it really means um we are all unique different individual human beings we all have different characteristics lived experiences that we can bring to the world of work and and businesses that leverage our diversity are successful because they don't fall into groupthink um you can benefit from different perspectives different experiences therefore you can better respond to customer needs you could be more innovative more creative um loads of evidence academic evidence that diverse teams make better decisions Mm. um so there's a huge number of benefits so the the iceberg analogy that i often share with my clients is that what you can see 10 percent of the iceberg poking above the waterline and these are often our visible characteristics mm. and and often the ones that are enshrined in um, equality legislation so in the uk we've got the equality act and there's nine protected characteristics for example um however underneath the waterline this represents about 90 percent of the iceberg that you can't see mm-hmm. and these are our other characteristics and often invisible so it could be whether you're an introvert or extrovert for example it could be whether you grew up in the countryside or in the middle of a city um it could be whether you are a member of the lgbt community Mm. or not or whether you have an invisible disability um and so it's such a rich tapestry of diversity that that's kind of hidden beneath the surface so i'm already going off on on a tangent here um so has diversity then been diversity as we think of it today has that been boxed in to certain demographics and if it has what's the impact of that yes so a lot of leaders and organizations they have a very limited view on diversity so when they hear the diversity word they think that oh it must be to do with one or two groups of people it's about women in leadership or women working in technology or people from an ethnic minority background or members of the LGBT community. So they have a very kind of like siloed and also hierarchical view of looking at diversity. Mm. Um, And I like to get my clients to think more about the inclusion piece Mm. and what it means to make people feel like 
they're respected for who they really are, that they belong to the organization, that they feel empowered, that they have the ability to progress um, and focus on that yeah. and and to celebrate our differences. And for me, diversity is a given. Um, in the UK, we, we live in a very diverse country. Yeah. Um, you know, diversity is there. It's it's on our doorstep. Whether or not we choose to invite that diversity into our organisation is a conscious act. Yeah. And leaders have to be really mindful of what barriers are created that's that's preventing people from from entering the organisation. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to park that one for a second and and get back into our terminology because my head's going all over the place at the moment. Um, <laughs> so there was there was a a term that that I really like that that you're using, which is micro inequity that people might have heard of as as microaggressions. And oh, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my hand up here. Is that I I'm probably full of these. And but I don't know what I don't know. And I want to know what I don't know so that I stop doing it. <laughs> so yeah. can you please speak to microaggressions, micro inequities? And if you've got if you've got lived experience of that and, and how it impacts you, I think that would be really helpful, Toby. Yeah, so a lot of people get tied up in knots about this, really. Mm. Um Micro inequities and microaggressions are, you know, pretty much the same thing. Um, but I'll, I'll explain the the difference between it. So, microaggressions are basically small bits of behaviour that um, are disrespectful or undermine somebody, and we 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 all do it um, at some point in our career. Yeah. Um, so, a microaggression, for example, is like going to a meeting with a colleague and you are more interested in what's going on your phone rather than giving your full attention to your colleague. So that's a microaggression. It's something that we, you know, that we've probably all all done or, or we've been certainly on the receiving end of. A micro inequity is basically a small behaviour, but it's kind of directed at a characteristic that we have, mm-hmm. be that our gender, our ethnicity, uh, our disability, our sexuality. So quite often I hear people, um, so like w- women I work with, for example, will often say that it's often assumed that they're going to go and get the coffee or that they're they're the ones that are going to take the notes in the meeting. Still today? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Far yeah. Out. yeah. And or from an ethnicity perspective, it might be um you know, I've got black colleagues where people just feel like it's okay to go up to a black woman and just touch their hair without permission. Oh um, um yeah. And so invading, you know, invading their, their personal space. Um or working with a colleague who doesn't have like an English sounding name mm-hmm. and mispronouncing their name yeah. or just saying, oh, is it okay if I just call you Sam? Because, you know, I can't, basically I can't B 
be bothered to learn how to pronounce your your full name properly. So the, those are those are examples of micro inequities because they are linked to a a characteristic somehow. Uh, and so thank thank you for that because you've really expanded the scope for me. And and what's your experience of um, the people who are on the receiving end of this? What stops them from speaking out or respectfully challenge challenging that microaggression, that micro inequity? There's a number of reasons. Um, one of them is just fatigue. So if you're if you're constantly on the receiving end of, yeah. of microaggressions, um, it can be quite wearing. Mm. And some people just go, you know what? I just can't be asked mm. to raise this again. Mm. Um, another reason is that because they are so small and fleeting, sometimes they're difficult to capture in the moment. Okay. Because because the because it passes so quickly. Um, and also there's there's a whole thing around psychological safety in organizations as mm. well that if you don't have that level of psychological safety to be able to call out or speak up um it's it for some people it's easier just to stay quiet yeah um the other thing that's really common is that if you're on the receiving end of this a lot of people start reporting that well maybe it's something to do with me maybe i'm the problem rather than the behavior of other people or the culture of the organization that you're in Gosh. and therefore they start to kind of internalize it as i'm you know there's there's a problem with me that i i'm in the wrong and and when that starts to happen it really eats at people's confidence yeah. um and then it really affects people's mental health so when you're when you're working with organizations and you you bring this up as a topic, are they surprised and embarrassed that they're doing it, that it's been an unconscious behavior? And, and if so, how do you, how do you help people to break that habit and raise that level of consciousness? So people are not surprised because I first start to talk about the micro aggressions that we all have probably received mm. or done, like paying more attention to your phone than to the person that you're meeting with. And so often people are like, oh yeah, I get it. I've been in that situation. My boss has done that to me. So I totally understand. Mm. And I understand the, the impact of that behavior on how I feel. And then I take it up a notch and I go, now imagine that you, you're receiving certain behaviours because of your ethnicity or because of your visible disability or because of your sexuality or because of your gender or gender identity. Um, and then people are like, okay, yeah, now I can start to see, I, I, can, I can start to see how that happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I had, um, I was coaching somebody last week and they shared with me, that there was somebody in in their team who um, identifies as non-binary, has a goes by a name that we would typically label as a female name, and yeah. 
when he was talking about this person to the leadership team, he kept saying her and she, and he was corrected. And he, look, he, he, he wasn't aware of the impact he was making. And, but then he said, how do I, how do I break this? How do I break this habit? And I said, you've got to bring it to conscious awareness. You've got to practice yeah. it. I don't know. I mean, what tips would you have, Toby? It's a difficult one. And I, I think you're right. You, you have to bring it into conscious awareness because it's like any habit, you know, we can create new habits. Um, there's been plenty of books written on how we form new helpful habits. If mm. you want to eat better or smoke less or drink less or go to the gym more. So I think um, we can follow those same kind of principles. Mm. Um, but it starts with awareness and wanting to make a change. Yeah. And and I think to be to be kind to yourself in a way as well, to say, you know what, I put my foot in it. I'm only human. I make mistakes, but I'm going to live and learn and I'm going to move on and I'm going to be a better person afterwards. I'm, I'm so glad you said that because what, what we agreed was that to, to sort of be upfront at the start and say, you know, if if I slip, pull me up. Um, it, it, it's it's not my intention, and I really do want to, you know, to to make this to make this change for good. And I'm yeah. curious as well. So, when we co-facilitated that workshop, um, you're in a wheelchair. I am extremely short, so there's, there's never a situation <laughs> where I have to bend down to speak to you. But what what's the what's the etiquette? Say say you're you're in conversation with someone who's quite tall. Um, what what's the etiquette? I think the the key thing is just to ask the person yeah. who you're talking to. Because um, I can't remember if I if my wheelchair did this when we first met, but my wheelchair actually goes up and down. Yeah. So at at its at its highest point, I'm I'm almost at kind of eye to eye level with with somebody who's kind of average height yeah. so yes you could have sat down to talk to me so that we're on the same level but equally I could have in- raised my chair you didn't to be at the same level as you <laughs> <laughs> did I not do that <laughs> you didn't need to I'm not sure oh, right. <laughs> I could have raised it a tiny bit <laughs> Okay, that yeah, God, it's so simple, isn't it? Just ask, just ask. just ask. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, I want, I'd like to ask you as well about about representation, um, and and what that means, and 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 what it means if, if we think about it in business and as a again as a conscious strategic objective and when I say business I mean that can be commercial not-for-profit government or what have you can you speak to us more about representation yeah I mean representation is so important because it makes people feel like they are seen and heard and that they have a place in the organization so when somebody joins a business and they look up at the senior leadership team and they don't see themselves reflected at that senior level they often feel like you know I just don't 
I don't I don't have a future in this organization. I mm. there's no one like me running the business. So mm. how can I how can I get promoted to that level? That's often like a subconscious thought that people have. Um and similarly, just just in everyday walks of life, if if we don't see ourselves reflected in the media, for yeah. example, um it's it's almost as if we're invisible. Yeah. Um so I think it's really important that we make sure that we have genuine, authentic representation of as of, of as many of us as, as we possibly can. And gosh, there's a long way still to go, isn't there? Yeah, there's a huge amount of bias, unfortunately, in that's in the world that's that that, that then infiltrates our politics our businesses our media and we as i think as a human human species we need to we need to be a lot more aware of Mm. these biases and try to mitigate them so when when you're working with a client say you're you know you've got the opportunity to have this sort of conversation with a senior leadership team or an executive leadership team, if we can get access to them, um, how how do they respond in these conversations, and and what sort of actions do they consciously look to take? Yeah, I mean, organisations that I end up working with are invariably completely open to the idea of talking about diversity and inclusion and wanting to make improvements yeah, and wanting yeah. to make a decisions. I don't end up with, you know, I think the very nature of the working in the consultancy space is that I don't work with companies that are closed to the idea because mm. they wouldn't have me in anyway. Mm. So, but even when I am in organizations that are open and receptive, um, I do still come across quite a lot of let's call them barriers Mm. um, to progress. And I think one of the things that I come across a lot is, is fear. There's a huge amount of fear um, about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, causing offense. Yeah. And that can often lead to lead to inaction because people don't want to be bold. They don't want to, lean into that vulnerability as a senior leader and have difficult conversations with people yeah i hear you (laughs) it's the ones yeah it's the ones that that that, you know how how do we get access to those organizations who don't see it as a problem yeah and it's i think i i have to do a lot of education and i create lots of content that i put out on linkedin and do lots of webinars and mm-hmm. a huge amount of like content and and the whole reason for doing that is we have to educate businesses so that they get to the point where they're they're like okay we're ready to do something about this yeah. we 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 now see the problem yeah we or we see the risks uh and we see the opportunity and we're we're ready to actually yeah do something about it. Okay. And actually, that sort of links quite well with my next question. Um, so my guest in last month's podcast, um, the 
um, the theme was around meaningfulness and, and she was talking about greenwashing and rainbow washing. Um, mm. And I was, I'm just curious, is there such a thing as diversity washing that goes on? And, and if it does, how do you spot it? And what's the impact? Oh yeah, there's a huge amount of it going on. Um, there's the rainbow washing, there's the pink washing, there's the purple washing, which is for disabled people. Disabled people have adopted purple as their official colour, uh, apparently. So, um, so there is a lot of that going on. I mean, I, I like to just call it window dressing. Yeah. And there's a huge amount of organisations that they, you know, they they create lots of comms about how inclusive they are, that they really value diversity, but the um, the the experience of staff in the organisation is that it's not an inclusive place to work. And on my own podcast, I actually interviewed somebody called Sally, who at the time she was head of diversity and inclusion for EY, mm-hmm. and she she says um, she was calling it the rhetoric gap, um, and EY actually changed their policy to not enter awards um, because she felt that some awards, some diversity and inclusion awards were really just about raising your profile. They weren't really about sustainable change. Yeah. Um, and and therefore trying to get people, trying to get EY colleagues to be able to talk online and at conferences about what it's like to work for the firm rather than try and go out and win awards. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And actually, we're, yeah. we're probably on to our last sort of terminology bit then in terms of um, you, you you differentiate calling out and calling in. Um, tell us more about that, Toby, please. Yeah, so again, it's kind of the same thing, really, but different approaches and also depending on how comfortable you feel doing it so calling out and calling in is is how you respond when you notice non-inclusive behaviors Mm -hmm. so let's say for example like you and I are in a meeting and I notice that um I'm going to I'm going to use loads of stereotypes here, Claire. Unfortunately, <laughs> but let's okay. you and I are in a meeting, yeah. Um, and I notice that the the guys in the room keep talking over you, because like you're the only woman in the meeting, and and then you you share an idea in the meeting and you don't get credit for that idea, mm-hmm. but then it, one of the guys basically says your idea and then he gets the credit for it, and this happens quite a lot. And and again, it's it's examples of microaggressions. So calling out would be where I might just put my hand up and go say and and say, hang on a minute, everyone. Um, Claire, you know, Claire's just shared a really great idea, and um, but you know, so and so's just taking yeah. credit off for that. Um, or hang on, everyone. I've noticed that whenever Claire speaks up, um, everyone just you know talks over her and she can't get her point across. Yeah. Um, now that I've just said that, that feels very direct and it might actually put make you feel quite uncomfortable. So that's one that, that's kind of the judgment that we have to, to be able to make. So that's kind of calling out. It's like you, you speak up and you say what you notice in the moment. Yeah. Um, calling in, which is my preferred style, just because of the way that I like to operate, is where I kind of check in with you 
um, or I might check in with the chair. So in, in the coffee break, I might come up to you and I might go, Claire, I've noticed that whenever you um, put an idea across, somebody else is taking credit for that. Or um, I, I noticed that people keep talk, talking over to you or talking over you. Like, how, how do you feel about that? So I'm trying to show a bit more empathy. Yeah. Um, or I might I might pull the like the meeting chair to one side and I might say, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but whenever Claire um, speaks up, some of the other guys just talk over her as as chair. You know, could you be a bit more mindful of that yeah. and try to make sure that Claire gets her voice heard? So that's calling in. Great. Um, and that's my preference, really. Thank you. And um, funnily enough, that has happened to me in the past. Um, and. To, and to be able to, and you know, in so if we take meetings as an example, to have some sort of check-in at the end, how did we go? Did we speak over each other? Did we take credit for something? You know, that it becomes part of the general meeting etiquette, for example, or we, that we start to talk about how we communicate with each other. That then just becomes the norm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good idea. And I, it rings a bell, actually. I think one of my clients created a meeting checklist of how to run effective, and that included yeah. inclusive meetings. And it was just to set that that etiquette at the beginning of the meeting. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Toby. I want to, I suppose I want to move on to... Um, I suppose it's a, it's like a massive question about where does where does DNI sit in the organisation and I, if you can share if we maybe go back to your example at, at the BBC and what was the stance what was the role of senior leadership or the CEO that actually made a difference in in diversity equity and inclusion being taken seriously being championed can you speak more to that yeah so very often the diversity and inclusion is seen as a hr department's Mm. responsibility and it's often the responsibility is put on the shoulders of the the head of hr and it's something i do talk about in my book because i've got i've got experiences of of Hey, uh, diversity and inclusion being owned by different parts of the business. So when when I was working in technology at the BBC, the the DNI plan was owned by our chief operating officer. And I thought that was a great move because diversity and inclusion cuts across all aspects of business. Yeah. It's not just a people issue. Yeah. You need to be thinking about things like how how much diversity do you have in your marketing? campaigns therefore marketing have a stake yeah um how inclusive are your offices and your buildings so again whoever runs your offices or your workplace they have to have a stake in the in the agenda um so it cuts across all businesses and and i think unfortunately when it's when it's based in the hr department it's very much focusing on the people agenda yeah and it's and and the HR departments are not very good at collaborating with the marketing department or the procurement department mm-hmm. or the IT department um, who need to be involved in the conversation. 
So you're helping people to see those interdependencies that working uh, across verticals, across silos and taking that more holistic approach. Yeah. And I mean, that's why I wrote the book, Inclusive Growth, because I actually wanted to reframe diversity and inclusion in the minds of leaders that if you get it right, it will only help your business grow and prosper. And one of the first questions that I ask any organization when I start working with them is, how do you want to grow as a business? And then they tell me. And then I go, so how do you now see diversity and inclusion accelerating that growth or helping you helping you outperform that growth? And then they start to then connect the dots. They're like, oh yeah, actually, if we have a diverse workforce or if our culture is inclusive, then you know we can grow in this way or the other. Yeah. And who that we may know of, who do you see as role modeling this, as doing it really well? So unfortunately, there's I would say there's no organization that has solved everything. Mm. There's there's probably examples of good practice dotted all over the place, different industries, different different businesses, different parts of the world. Um, I wish there was a golden standard, but yeah. unfortunately there isn't. What would, what would it, I'm putting you on the spot here. I've gone completely off track of any of the questions I was going to ask you. Um, in your experience, what would that, what, 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 what would it take to achieve um, that golden standard? So really, I think it's about focusing on equity um, and inclusion and less on the diversity, which sounds a bit ironic, but loads of organizations say we want more diversity in the business. Why the thing is they're they're focusing on the wrong end of the spectrum. Yeah. We have to start at the bottom of the pyramid. We have to first of all, focus on equity. And what I mean by equity is that I think there's a mistake. People often feel like we have to treat everybody the same in order to be fair. But the thing is, because we're all unique individuals, we can't treat everybody the same. We have to treat everyone as an individual and give individuals what they need in order to thrive. And that's, that's the equity piece. Once we've achieved equity, we've then got equality you know, because you and I are then able to compete on a level playing field. You know, Once we've achieved equality, we then need yeah. to make sure that we've got inclusion and belonging in place. You've just reminded me about, it's probably, it's probably very overused, but it just comes to mind that lovely image of the, the three kids trying to look at that. Was it a cricket match or something? And equity, yeah. they all had the same size box. And if it would be me at four foot, ten and three quarters, I still wouldn't be able to see yeah. over the fence. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that it's a really great graphic that explains the difference between equality and equity. So, I mean, one of the things that, or well, not one, but something that keeps coming up at the moment in terms of um management and leadership in organizations is uh how how more how much more complex it's becoming um that leaders are burning out um is how 
and I'm not I'm not thinking best how to frame this question, but how do you help them? I suppose to see that the return on investment that because it sounds like oh shit I've got an, another whole load of stuff to to focus on. Do do you get yeah. that pushback at all? I do, yeah, yeah, I do, Be, and it comes back it comes back to mindset really that. A lot of people think that diversity and inclusion is like this extra thing that you have to do, um, this extra activity, this extra work. And when you're a senior, when you're a busy senior leader, you've already got enough pressure on your plate and your to-do list is longer than you can cope with. Mm. Um, and, And then it's like, well, and we've got to do this thing called diversity and inclusion. But there's two points to this, really. One, I think organizations need to understand how this just should be integrating into the way that we do business yeah um and it becomes part of the fabric of your organization and i often liken it to health and safety um certainly in the uk you know health and safety has become just part of business everyone knows what their responsibilities are everyone knows what to do if they spot a risk um everyone you know if there's an incident that happens, you respond appropriately. Mm. Um, you might even do an investigation to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And then you put in all the measures to make sure that everybody's kept safe. And that's just, you know, that's just now normal business. Yeah. So I would love diversity, you know, your, your previous question was about, well, what does the golden standard look like? I mean, I'd like diversity and inclusion to, to become as mature as yes. health and safety. Um, the other point to the answer really is that leaders have to be really clear on the why and you know to to, to steal the words of Simon Sinek he says start with your why yeah um and again this is some this is one of the first exercises that I do with leadership teams I I get them to understand their why because the the why is unique to every business mm. uh, and they need to be able to have two or three reasons why diversity and inclusion is important to yeah. them and and for that to be a conversation that's had throughout the organization and not just the leadership team absolutely it starts with the leadership team because they're the ones that set the tone for the organization and have to it has to cascade mm-hmm. down from there yeah yeah absolutely um there's Something that I want to talk about is actually around um, around disability. I'm um, moderating a panel discussion next week, and it's it's around DEI priorities. And I was having a meeting today with the the panel members, and something that one of them said resonated with me because it's something that you put in your book as well about that disability seems to be I suppose for want of a better expression at the bottom of the pile when it comes to prioritizing why and what can be done about it why disability yeah it's there does seem to be a bit of a hierarchy when it comes to diversity and inclusion so a lot of organisations, they'll, they'll they've got it. They'll focus on one or two partic- particular groups. So they'll say, 
Oh, yeah, yeah. We're all about diversity and inclusion. And our priority right now is women in leadership or women in tech. Um, and then next year, we're going to focus on being an anti-racist organization and we're going to create our, you know, our ethnicity action plan. And then the year after that, it's all about mindfulness. And then the year after that, we're going to go out and save some whales. And then eventually we'll get around to doing disability. I hear that a lot. Um, I, it is, I don't know why, I think it's something to do with the human psyche. I think it's something to do with, we, we like to put things into boxes. We like to characterize things and we like to label things. Mm. And it's our way of making sense of the world. Yeah. And, you know, if somebody meets me for the first time, they're going to put me in the, the wheelchair user box. Yeah. It's, it's, that's my visible characteristic. Yeah. Um, the problem with then attaching that label is that we then make all sorts of all sorts of all sorts of assumptions or presumptions or stereotypes about that individual. Um, as Verna Meyer puts it in her TED talk, we we make up stories about people before we get to know them. Yeah, and this is really the root cause of our kind of implicit biases. Yeah, and I think that's what happens. Um, Whereas I, I like to get my clients to shift towards more about inclusion um, yeah. and and equity and then hope that the diversity is that, you know, the final outcome of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, yeah, it sounds to me like it's putting the horse and cart in the right order. Toby, on that note, thank you so much. I have thoroughly enjoyed reconnecting with you and our conversation and you have given us so much food for thought thanks claire i've I've really enjoyed chatting with you yeah same here go well toby thanks for listening and we hope that this conversation provided the insights and inspiration that you were looking for we're on a mission to get the key messages about modern day leadership out to as many people as possible So look, if you do listen regularly or enjoyed any of the episodes, please head over to your regular podcast platform, subscribe and give us a positive review. You can also find Authentic Leadership on YouTube on the Being Brain Smart channel. And before you go, if you'd like to know what I do when I'm not interviewing amazing guests, I facilitate, train, speak and coach on the neuroscience of leadership and change. To find out more, head over to the BrainSmart website. That's brain-smart.com to find out more about some of our programs or email me, that's Claire, C-L-A-R-E, at brain-smart.com. Go well, and thanks again for listening.